So, a couple of weeks ago, we went camping with the kids and with some friends. And uh, we've been trying to do that a bit more and just enjoy Norwegian nature and, you know, become a bit more Norwegians because apparently that's something you have to do, uh, is go to the woods. Uh, and one of the things that I love about camping in Norway in the summer is just is the, the light, the long, drawn evening. And, and that, moments when, that moment when the kids are sleeping and have finally quieted down in the tents, <laughs> and uh, we're sitting around the fire, and we're looking over a beautiful lake, and we have that lingering light refusing to go away. And being in that space and in that moment, looking around at the beauty of creation, of the natural order, we remind ourselves of just how privileged we are to, to be there, to be in that space and be able to enjoy it. And there's a sense of, for me, there's a sense of contemplation. There's a sense of beauty and quietness, peace even, when you're out in the woods like that. It's a sense almost of finding yourself in a holy place where beauty and life are undeniably bigger than you. And, and they are encompassing. They're all around and they're less cluttered. Now this sense of awe, it's a sense of awe and worship before the greatness of God. For we, as, as Christians, we recognize God in this greatness. Uh, this sense of awe and worship before the greatness of God, God the creator. It is part of what informs and what shapes the psalm that I want to share with you today. Uh, it's, it's summer and that means we're talking about the book of Psalms here in Oslo International Church, uh, Summer in the Psalms, as, as we call this recurring series. Uh, we do it every year. Where are you going to spend your summer? We're going to spend it in the Psalms. And today I want to invite you to listen to Psalm 15. And again, uh, as we've been, been doing, I would like to invite you to just listen to it. If you really have an itch, you can read it. It's in Psalm 15, but we're not going to put it on the screen. I would like to invite you to just listen to it as this piece of oral poetry that it originally was. And people would know this by heart, and they would hear it, and they would chant it. Uh, and we've been trained to read. So when we read stuff, we engage our brain a bit differently. So I just want to encourage you to listen, to be in this space. And I want to read it for you. Uh, it's Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath 
even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The psalm opens up with this twofold question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And this question, it is part of the wider experience of humanity, but it's also a part of the experience of the people of God and certainly of the psalmist. Uh, This is a psalm of David. And and the tradition of David, uh, of the psalms of David, it repeats this same question, variations of it, and revisits this theme in other psalms as well. And I want to share with you another example. Listen to how uh, this tradition of David comes to the psalm and to this theme in the context of another psalm of Psalm 24. Where the psalm says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. All before a God who is creator and who is present. But in that contemplation, in that awe, in that awareness, we find that there is more to God than just the power of his creation. There is the purity of his character, the purity of his character. And it's evoked in this contemplation of creation, but it goes beyond it. It is this perfection that invites more than contemplation. This perfection that invites, that calls for clean hands and a pure heart. God mighty, and God holy. For the psalmist and for the people of Israel, these images, these images of the holy mountain and the sacred tent, which are being evoked in the psalm, the holy mountain and the sacred tent, they meant much more than just the contemplation of the creating God. These expressions, they are dense with spiritual semantic and experience of their very ancestors, of the ones who came before them. Yes, the the earth is the Lord and the Lord's and everything in it, as the psalm puts it, but the tent and the mountain, they evoke more. There are three key references in Israel's experience of God, of God's revelation, that inform and that fill up this opening question of Psalm 15 with meaning. Who 
may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain. The first reference is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, where after being delivered from slavery from Egypt and led through arid wilderness amidst miracles of providence and fears of abandonment, where the people of Israel are to receive the law, (laughs) the instructions for life, the guidance of life. And Moses, Moses, the holy man of God, climbs the mountain while the people away at its base. And from there, they see only the cloud and the thunder that crack and bolt and shrouds the top of the mountain from their eyes. Yet even as Moses converses with God up in the mountain in the slow motions of revelation, even as that happens, the people are not willing to wait. They yearn for a God that they can wrap their minds around, a God that they can attach their wealth to. And so they fashion an image for Yahweh. They fashion an image, a mock worship in the shape of a golden calf. And they kneel and they celebrate before this mock version of Yahweh, cast in gold in the shape of a calf. Mount Sinai is the living image of the contrast between God's holiness and our inadequacy, our idolatry, our failure. So the twofold question of the first verse of the psalm is not only an opening question. It is what frames and encompasses the whole psalm. The ending verses send us right back to that opening question. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So who then may dwell in your sacred tent? And that's the second reference. It's the tabernacle. The presence of God in the middle of the people. For despite their idolatry, they do receive the law. They do receive the law and rather than destroy them, God goes with them as the telling of the story goes. Rather than destroy them, God goes with them and gives them a visible sign. The tablets and the tabernacle. So under the instructions of that divine encounter, they build a tent, an elaborate tent that is a place of encounter in the middle of their camp. No longer on the top of the mountain, but in the middle of their camp. And within this tent, within this tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of the law within them say that God is with them and that they will be God's people. Wherever they go, the tabernacle is among them. God is among them. But still, the tabernacle carries the marks of the mountain. Only Moses enters. Only Moses enters. It's there. 
in the middle of the people, but only Moses enters. And there are ritual stages to approach, to enter. There is a fear of a holiness so pure that it will consume us in our impurity. Who may dwell, not just enter, who may dwell in your sacred tent is a big question indeed. And then there's the third reference in the religiosity and the spirituality of Israel, which is Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where the tabernacle becomes a temple on a mountain in the heart of the promised land. So after settling in Canaan and firmly establishing the monarchy with King David, his son, King Solomon, builds a temple. A magnificent structure of wood and stone on the top of Mount Zion. The tabernacle and the temple are mirrored in their structure. They're basically the same structure. There are the innermost parts where the Ark of the Covenant is to lie, and only the ritually purified may enter. And then there are the outer courts where the people come and join in the festivities and celebrations to say God is with us in this land that he gave us. The mountain and the tent are the place of meeting with the Lord. So that this is both Mount Zion, the place where the people gather for the, for, for the festivities and the celebrations, but it is also symbolically Mount Sinai, the place of terror in the face of God's holiness. And the longing for one and the fear of the other are two sides of the same coin in the spirituality of the biblical narrative of what we call the Old Testament. Now, whether we come to Sinai or to Zion, whether the rugged mountaintop or the tabernacle or the temple, that question that opens Psalm 15 does not leave us. Who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Certainly not us. Certainly not us. But then, further down the road in the biblical story, we find an answer. And it's not a theological answer. It's not a philosophical answer. It is not a conceptual answer. And I want to read from you from the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to read from chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke. From verse 28. And it says, About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. 
Peter and his comp- companions were very sleepy, but when they became, but they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the, man were leave, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then comes Luke's snarky commentary. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Here, finally, the longing, the longing expressed in the question of the psalmist takes flesh and bone and it is Someone. Someone. Jesus is a resounding, eternal yes. The holiness, the holiness that slips through our fingers as we read the psalm and navigate life addresses him like it is his own skin. And Peter, waking up from his slumber, he sees it. He gets it, and he wants to hold tight to it. This, this is it. The accessible, close presence of the holy God. The accessible, close presence of the holy God. There's the glory of God, the shining cloud. There's the mountain, and I am not dead. I live I am alive and I want to stay here. Often when we camp with the kids, they don't want to leave the next day. Yeah. They ask if we can stay another day, another night. But we pack our tents, we gather our stuff, and we head back to the city. As Peter tries to gather sticks for his shelters, right? Moses and Elijah are already gone. Peter or Jesus, his clothes become weather beaten again, and he's walking down the mountain. And it feels like an anticlimax. Have you ever felt that? walking back from an experience of awe and holiness into the arid everydayness of life. It's interesting, though, that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter because it's not so much that Peter's idea is wrong, his wanting to be there. It's just that it's misplaced. It is inappropriate because Peter wants to stay with Jesus on the mountain. But Jesus is not going to stay on the mountain. Jesus brings together all those well-known experiences of God in Israel's history 
But then he brings about a radical shift of paradigm. He goes down the mountain and right into the middle of the mess of history. And this time, there is no tabernacle. No tent, no mountain, just Jesus in the middle of the people. And down in the valley or the plain or the rocky edges, down there he meets a Samaritan woman and he tells her something remarkable about worshiping this holy God. He says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The disappearance of Moses and Elijah and the shining light, as well as the returning from the mountain, they seem like the anticlimax. However, the meeting on the mountain was never about the mountain. It was about what was to happen down there. The mountain moment was meant to impregnate the valley. The desert, like the spirit of God in the womb of Virgin Mary. Jesus invites us into a spirituality, into a life where holy mountain and city streets are not worlds apart. And Jesus shifts the paradigm in at least two essential ways. First, in Jesus, if you want to speak in, in the terms of the biblical narrative, in Jesus, the temple walks down the mountain. The temple expands, breaking down the walls. In Jesus, we find that it is not that whatever we do outside the wall of the temple gives us or not the credentials to enter into the temple. It is not that God is inside the temple waiting until we're clean enough to enter. The things we are called to do and the way we are called to live outside the temple, they are not prerequisites for meeting God. They are where we, we, we meet God. Whatever you do to one of these little ones, Jesus says, you did it to me. The life we live on the valleys, the dark ones and the sunny ones, is not where we train ourselves to be good enough for God. That's where God meets us. And the second essential way in which he shifts paradigms is that we find that the experience of the temple, of the mountain, is important. Fundamental, perhaps, but it is never an end in itself. Jesus was not less God on the cross than he was on the mountain. The disciples needed the mountain to understand his holiness, his divinity, and play their part in telling the history of Revelation. But Jesus didn't. 
Temples and services and holy mountain-like moments, they are for our, benef- for our benefit, to help us cultivate a sense of divinity in the middle of a fallen world. That's why we walk into spaces like this, to help us cultivate a sense of divinity and presence in the middle of a fallen world. But they become self-defeating if they do not usher us back into where God is. The fulfillment of the requisites, if we would want to, I would say mistakenly describe them that way, uh, the requisites described in the Psalms, they are not matters of the temple. They are matters of everyday life. They are the life we are called into in Christ. In Christ, Christ didn't pitch his tent on the mountaintop. Peter wanted to. Jesus walked down and he pitched his tent with the weak and with the broken. He pitched his tent with the poor and with the restless. He pitched his tent with the tired and the weary and the sick and with the struggling, with the doubtful, with the crawling. He pitched his tent with us. Praise be to the God who sees and who is and who will be and who does not turn his face. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you And may he give you peace. Go in peace and serve the Lord joyfully.